0: This morning's passage is Nehemiah 2. During the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence, so the king said to me, Why do you look so sad when you aren't sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. I was overwhelmed with fear and replied to the king, May the king live forever. Why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king asked me, what is your request? So I prayed to the God of the heavens and answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah and to the city where my ancestors are buried so that I may rebuild it. The king with the queen seated beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you return? So I gave him a definite time, and it pleased the king to send me. I also said to the king, if it pleases the king, let me have letters written to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates River, so that they will grant me safe passage until I reach Judah. And let me have a letter written to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to rebuild the gates of the temple's fortress, the city wall, and the home where I live. The king granted my requests, for the gracious hand of my God was on me. I went to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent officers of the infantry and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard that someone had come to pursue the prosperity of the Israelites, they were greatly displeased. After I arrived in Jerusalem and had been there three days, I got up at night and took a few men with me. I didn't tell anyone what my God had laid on my heart to do for Jerusalem. The only animal I took was the one I was riding. I went out at night through the valley gate toward the serpent's well and the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. I went on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but farther down it became too narrow for my animal to go through. So I went up at night by way of the valley and inspected the wall. Then, heading back, I entered through the valley gate and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, for I had not yet told the Jews, priests, nobles, officials, or the rest of those who would be doing the work. So I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned. Come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's wall so that we will no longer be a disgrace." I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and what the king had said to me. They said, let's start rebuilding, and their hands were strengthened to do this good work. When Sanbalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about this, they mocked and despised us and said, what is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? I gave them this reply. The God of the heavens is the one who will grant us success. We, his servants, will start building, but you have no share, right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. This is the word of God. Please be seated.
1: Um, there we go. <laughs> um, good morning, everyone. Um, thanks for bra- uh, braving the cold to be here. Um, if you're um, here for the first time or you're here for the uh, 500th time, it's, it's so great to see you, um, and thanks for being here with us. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase, but in stories, there's something called a narrative arc, and it's basically like the shape of the story. And there's lots of different narrative arcs out there. Uh, one that's particularly kind of popular in like sports films is what's called a man in a hole arc. So there should be uh, should be a slide coming up here with the with the shape of this one. So think think with me, right? You've got like a, a heavyweight boxer. He's in like the prime of his life. Everything's going really good. He's on top. And then there's obviously the young challenger, this new kid that comes up, rises to the ranks, and he defeats the champion. And you'll see that moment where he gets defeated, that's the slump, that kind of valley there in that shape. And then he goes to his coach. You get the classic montage, you know? Amazing music, loads of like, Scenes of him like pulling carts along and like chopping wood and all that kind of stuff. Like the, kind of, like the classic like Rocky kind of like training montage. And he climbs out of it and then he defeats that younger um, person who took his crown and then he ends up kind of back on top again. So that's, that's, a, that's a man in a hole arc. There's another one which apparently is even more emotionally engaging. It's called the double man in a hole. So this should come up again on the screen. So, double man, in a hole, looks like this. And this is, the, this is the tool that I thought I would use to basically bring us up to speed on where we are in the book of Nehemiah. Because ne, the, Nehemiah finds, um, the book of Nehemiah sorry, finds itself in this broader story, which is literally just like this double man in a hole arc. So, it starts off good, you've got King David um, and his son Solomon, uh, they build Jerusalem. Um, they, you know, there's, this, there's this kind of glorious, um, glorious time in the, the history of the Israelites where everything is going great. The Queen of Sheba even comes to Jerusalem and she says, everyone's so happy, uh, everyone's doing so great, this is such a wonderful place that you've built. Everything's great. And then you start to see the gradual decline. And as you read through the books of like one, one kings, two kings, you start to see things get gradually worse, and then it kind of bottoms out, that first um, valley there would be when the people get taken into exile, the Babylonians come, they conquer uh, the people, they take them into captivity, lasts about 70 years, that would be that first valley right there, and then we start to get some um, prophecies, some kind of promises from God through the prophets that God's going to turn things around for the people, and we looked at this last week, um, Jeremiah, in particular, if you read Jeremiah chapter 30 to 33, he gives all these promises about how God's going to send the people back and they're going to restore, they're going to rebuild, they're going to renew. And that is pretty much what then ends up happening. So as we climb out of that first valley, we get the people um, who are sent back by King Cyrus, who, the Persian king at the time, he sends the people back to, to do just that, to rebuild Jerusalem, to restore it, to renew it. And things are going great. They, they rebuild the temple. They get that done. And then Ezra, who is basically um, a kind of forerunner to Nehemiah, um, he comes along and he basically makes it his mission to teach the people God's word. So there's these two, these two big goals, rebuild, rebuild the temple, teach people God's word. And then they shoot for the third one. Everything's going great. They're on top. And then they shoot for a third goal, which is to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And we looked last week at why that was so, so important. Like, If you're going to have a city in those days, if you didn't have walls, you had no safety. You had no safety against enemies. So it was a big deal. And they start building the walls. It's all going good. And then King Artaxerxes, who's the same king that we read about here in Nehemiah chapter 2, he gets nervous because he thinks, look, if I let them build these walls back up again, then they might turn on me, and it might be a threat to me and my, my power." So he rips the walls back down again, he burns the gates, and this takes us back into the next valley on that, um, on that shape there, that narrative arc. And that's kind of where we find ourselves when we start reading the book of Nehemiah. We're, in, we're kind of in that slump. Um, we read last week in chapter 1, Nehemiah hears the news of all the things that's happened to Jerusalem. And he weeps. He mourns. It's it, it's horrible. It's it's it's, de- it's a desperate situation. And then the, book, the the sort of the beginning of the book of Nehemiah, then is almost like the beginning of this upswing in this, the kind of the fortunes of the people. And that's kind of where we where we pick it up now. So in the year 445 BC, Nehemiah hears the news, and then as we saw last week, he spent four months in prayer. And that's kind of where we pick it up in, in chapter 2. So he spent, he spent four years, sorry, he spent four months praying, and now he's ready to, to do something. So I've called this sermon on Nehemiah chapter 2, um, Planning and Providence. And we're going to see why that is. And you can, you can split chapter 2 down into, into these, these sections. So first section, Nehemiah reveals his plan. And then you've got this opposition section. And then you've got Nehemiah confirms the need. And then thirdly, Nehemiah unites the people. And then there's one final opposition section at the end. So let's look at the first one then. Nehemiah reveals his plan. So he says at the beginning of chapter 2 that it's the month month of Nisan, which is how we know that it was four months after he heard the news. And he was heartbroken by that news. It it really kind of cut him to the heart. So he's been praying about this for four months. He's been, he's been taking his kind of emotions to God. He's been working through it with God in prayer. And, and now, only after four months in prayer, is he ready to actually do something about the city and the people that he loves so dearly. And right at the end of chapter one, Nehemiah says, God, would you grant me success in the presence of this man today? And that kind of like leaves as on a little bit of a kind of cliffhanger at the end of chapter 1, we're like, who's he talking about? Why is he praying for success with this person? And then we open up chapter 2, and it kind of resolves the tension for us, and we kind of get the answer as, why is Nehemiah praying about having success with this this particular person? Now, let's just quickly remind ourselves who Nehemiah is before we dive into um, the rest of this kind of first section. So his name means God is comfort. And he, he was a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. So Artaxerxes, Persian king, literally the most powerful man in, that, in, that, you know, in the known world at that, at that point in time. He had an intimate relationship with him. Cupbearers were able to go right into the, the king's bedroom. They probably would have talked together while he gave him the wine. He would have had to drink the wine first before he gave it to the king to prove that it wasn't poisoned. So he would have been a, a trusted ally of, of the king. And we also learn that he's from the tribe of Judah. Uh, we see that in chapter 1. And that's why he has such a deep love for Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the, the capital city of Judah. And we get this sense at this point that it's no accident. That there's, that there's no, this isn't just chance. That, that there's something at work here in Nehemiah's life. It wasn't an accident that he had both the means and the desire to actually help and do something about the situation in Jerusalem. Chapter 1, it kind of almost introduces us to this idea that Nehemiah is is kind of like God's man on the inside and that he's going to do something through Nehemiah that's going to have massive consequences um, for God's people. And it kind of, chapter 1 kind of tees up this idea that that God is kind of moving things through in his good and gracious, um, good and gracious plan with his, with his good and gracious hand. And a shorthand for that could, could be um, what's known as God's providence. So what is, what is God's providence? Well, it's kind of like a shorthand phrase for the fact that God has sovereign control over all things for his own glory and for the good of those who love him. One of the best examples of God's providence in the whole Bible is the life of Joseph. We find that in the sort of back, the kind of back half of, uh, of Genesis. And what happens to Joseph is he's, he's one of 12 sons who will later become the 12 tribes of Israel. And he's, he's, he's the favorite son. So his dad, you know, is constantly like favoring him and he give, gives him all this cool stuff. He gives him this amazing coat. And his brothers start to get jealous, and they're like, we've got to do away with this guy. He's getting way too big for his boots. You know, Our dad you know, thinks way too highly of him. So they throw him into a pit and try and kill him, and then they leave. But then the story takes a bit of a twist, and this kind of traveling band of merchants come along, and they pull him out of the hole. He then ends up getting sold into slavery in Egypt, and then he rises up through the ranks somehow and becomes the governor of Egypt. And he then is basically, with his... With his wisdom and his administrative gifts, he's able to basically save, you know, hundreds if not thousands of people from this big famine. So it's like, a, it's like the classic, like, man-in-a-hole art, right? Like, J- Joseph starts up, up here, and then he like, ends up in a hole, he ends up getting so- sold into slavery, and then he comes back, and, he, and then he's the hero. He's, you know, he saves all these people from, from this, this horrible famine. And we get this moment in Genesis 50. Uh, verses 18 to 21, and it describes the moment when Joseph is kind of reunited with his brothers, the the ones that tried to kill him. And he says these incredible words to to his brothers. He says, You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So this, this, this kind of doctrine of God's control over all things, right from the individual and all the way up to the biggest planet, it can be a, it can be a difficult one for us to, to get our heads around. And it's a di- it can be a difficult one for us to live out. And I think most people, most Christians at some point in their lives, will kind of wrestle with this dynamic. God's sovereignty on the one hand and our responsibility on the other. And there's also some, some other reasons why I think we find it a difficult doctrine to, to accept. Is the first I think the first reason is the you know the presence of evil in the world. So if if God is in control of all things, then why does he allow so much evil and suffering? And the thing is, the Bible doesn't give us like a neat and tidy answer to that to that question. And I think it's it's understandable. God's providence is hard to get our heads around. If if we've experienced an unusual amount of evil done to us, or we've had a a disproportionate amount of suffering in our lives, say, with an incurable disease or maybe a disability that we have to live with, which doesn't seem to have any redeemable features. And though I I don't have time to, (laughs) anywhere near enough time, to do a fully furnished biblical theology of the presence of evil and the sovereignty of God. I don't have the time to give it careful treat- treatment, obviously. But I think one point that we can accept is that God hates evil, but he also has the wisdom and the power to redeem even the darkest moments of human history. And he's also, he, he's, he's also able he's, he's able to do that in, in ways that are in a macro sense, so it might not necessarily even take place in our lifetime, but God is kind of over all things. I think a great example that God can do this, that God can use the greatest evil for, um, for great goods, is the cross. You see, the cross, it doesn't give us a comprehensive answer to these questions, but it proves that the greatest evil ever committed on the face of planet Earth, when the soldiers took Jesus, they they flogged him, they beat him, they nailed him to a cross, it, God, God sat there and allowed all that to take place, and everyone's thinking, what is going on? All, all of his followers are there, they're like, this is not how we were expecting this to happen. But obviously we know that God was at work in that moment. He was... Somehow able to redeem the worst, that worst moment in human history when the one who flung stars into space was nailed onto the cross. He was able to bring about salvation. It's, it's similar to Joseph. Joseph was able to bring about salvation through famine. Through the, the worst thing that happened in Joseph's life meant that he could save these people from, from this disaster. And in the same way, God can use what happened to Jesus to bring about the greatest goods that could ever that could ever be known for salvation of every single person on planet earth through, through faith in Christ. The second problem that we run into when we're thinking about God's providence and how it works is our actions don't matter. That, that's, that can be what we're tempted to say. Our actions don't matter. Because see, if God's in control of everything, if God's moving everything forward in history, both for his glory and for people's good, then it, why, like, why does it matter? Like, what I, what I do in my, in my life. Like, think about how, like, small and insignificant my little life is. It can, you can almost be tempted just to be like, well, I might as well just sit at home and, and just sort of do nothing, really, because God's going to get it done. God's going to get it done. He doesn't necessarily need me to do it. And this is, like, an understandable view. But it, it's clearly not what all of our kind of... All the people we see in the Bible who really live out faith... They're all people who use their God-given wisdom and strength for God's glory and for, and for people's good. They, we don't see people just sitting around on their hands. We see people actually getting out there and getting stuff done. And Nehemiah is a great example of this. See, we'll, we'll see through chapter 2 that he's always talking about God's providence. He's always talking about the way God, God's hand is moving through uh, his life and through the lives of, of others. But then he also plans. He also uses... His God-given gifts of administration, um, God-given gifts of leadership, to also move things along as well. You see, there's, like a, there's a humility in, in that approach. It's like, I'm going to give it my all because God asked me to do so, but I'm going to also leave it all in, in his hands as well. So let's dive back into this story then. So four months after he hears about Jerusalem, this is the day that he's been working up towards. And he goes in he 's got his cup of wine, he takes it to the king, and instantly the king notices that something 's amiss and this tells us that the king must have known Nehemiah so well because he could just tell by the look on his face that, that there wasn't that everything wasn 't okay and Then we read that nehemiah then it, it leaves him um, overwhelmed with fear he 's quaking in his boots because. He realizes that now that the king has spotted that there's something not quite right, that there's no going back now. He has to go through with what he was originally going to do. Another reason why he was overwhelmed with fear is he was going to break with etiquette. It wasn't the done thing for the cupbearer to make requests. And it wasn't the done thing for the cupbearer to reveal emotion either. He was also asking the same king that ripped down the walls only a few years earlier, He's asking that same king to go and build those walls back up again. So this could, have, this could easily have ended really badly. This, this, could co- this could have cost Nehemiah his life. But then the king goes, what's your request? And as we see, and as we will see throughout the rest of Nehemiah, he's a man that's he's saturated in prayer. Everything he does, he does. He kind of covers in prayer. So he, he gives this short prayer and then he plucks up the courage and he, asks, he lays it out to the king. He makes his request. He says, here's the problem and here's how I want to fix it. And, and, and instead of reacting in anger, the king re- re- responds by asking a question. He says, how long will it take? And again, Nehemiah doesn't mince his words. He gets to the point. He, says, gives, he gives the king a definite time. And then we read that that pleased the king, that the king was happy for, um, for Nehemiah to go on this mission. Um, and, then we, and then Nehemiah pushes it that little bit further. It's kind of like, at this point, we're like, don't ask for anything else. He's already said yes. Like, don't, don't push this guy like, any further. But then Nehemiah basically asks for an armed guard for that 900-mile journey. He says, give me an armed guard to protect me. And then he says, can you write a letter to this you know, the." The guy that's uh, in control of all the timber, and can you get me the stuff to get it done? And has he gone too far at this point? Is this the moment where the king goes, "That's one, that's one request too many"? No, no. It says that the king grants his requests, and then we get this. Let me get this incredible verse right at the end of. Of, that, of this section, in the second half of verse 8. It says, The king granted my requests, for the gracious hand of God was on me. So, so far in the story, it's kind of been played out on like a human level. We see Nehemiah and the king as the sort of main characters. And now we kind of zoom back and we see like a theological perspective. The reason why the king was so kind to Nehemiah, the reason why he granted his requests, was because of God's gracious hand. It's because of God's providence. So we get a theological angle on the story. Nehemiah knows that the only reason he had favor with the king was because of God's hands. He knows that his life is in God's hands. He knows that King Artaxerxes' life is in his hands. He knows that all things are in God's hands. And see, this knowledge was what gave Nehemiah the courage to go through with such a risky plan. You see, the king could very well have exploded with rage and had Nehemiah killed. Nehemiah knew the risks. He even admits his fear. Like, he wrote that down. He said, he said I, I, was, I was overcome with fear. But we see that he goes through with his plan because he has faith that he's in God's hands, that he's in the safety of God's care. See, this, this encounter, it gives us a lot to, to ponder about what a life of faith and a life of action looks like. You see, Christians are called to a life of obedience that sometimes involves risk. For some people in some countries, becoming a Christian might well mean that you get completely ostracized from your family, friends, and society, that you might even face violence as a result. There's some people who have a call on their life to leave a safe country and go to a dangerous country and, and proclaim the gospel. And then on, on more of a, I guess on more of a sort of day-to-day level, um, what about someone who's in a company where the only way to get promoted is to trample on other people and sort of tread them down? A risk, it's a risky move in a company like that To honor God, to honor what he says about how we should treat him and how we should treat other people. So if you're going to honor God in that way, in that company, that's a risky thing. You might get overlooked for promotions over and over and over again. The next point to draw out of this section is, is the humility of Nehemiah. So he, he attributes his success to God. He doesn't attribute any of his success to himself. Even though he had a really great plan, he'd researched it, and even though he delivered it so courageously and so well in the presence of the king, he just he, he gives all the glory and all the, and all the honor to God. You see, one of the fruits of trusting in God's providence is humility. When things go well, we humbly recognize that every good thing we do is ultimately because of God's sustaining grace in our lives. And lastly, we we see a peace and a likeness to Nehemiah. Like the psalmist says in Psalm 131 verse 2, his soul is like a weaned child with its mother. He's a man of of utter peace. And it flowed out of his, his prayers, right? Four months of prayer, four months of prayer, sitting with God, sitting with God, going through all those things, that made it, it made him into a grounded human being, a, a peaceful human being. Someone who could leave everything in God's hands and still go and try and do his best, but, but ultimately point all of the glory back. You see, when we, when we submit ourselves to the Father who cradles us in his arms, the, the same arms that hold the whole universe, <laughs> cradling us, then we can face the complexities of life, the risks of life, the fears of life. And through constant prayer, we can know that peace that surpasses all understanding. Philippians 4, 6 to 7. Okay. Now we're into the first opposition section. Okay? So everything's going great at this point. Verses 9 and 10. Sambalat and Tobiah, who were, who were governors, they were, they were important people, men with, men with clout. They see what Nehemiah wants to do, and we don't know quite why, but they, they're instantly furious about it. They, don't want it. they don't want it to happen. They make it their mission to stand in Nehemiah and the people's way. You see, there's always strong opposition to God's work. There's always strong opposition to God's people. And for us, as the Hallows, as we read through the rest of Nehemiah, we're going to see this theme come up time and time again. And it's going to give us a healthy dose of realism. That as we rebuild together, as we go into the future together, one thing that we can be absolutely certain of is that it will be opposition. And we can learn a lot about how to face that opposition through Nehemiah's life and through his friend's lives. All right, so second point then. Nehemiah has made his plan known to the king, and now he confirms the need, verses 11 to 16. So he arrives in Jerusalem, and he goes on this, on this night mission. He goes kind of um, undercover, and he goes around, and he's che- basically he's checking everything out. He's doing his due diligence. He's seeing how bad these walls really are how bad these gates were that got burned. He's he's not like taking someone else's word for it. He's going and doing the research and all of that kind of, laying all that groundwork himself. And he doesn't want anybody to know that he's doing this at this point. There's a couple of explanations for this. The first one is that he didn't want to involve the the local authorities before he'd had a chance to actually look at it himself and inspect the damage. Moving too quickly in this plan might have been foolish and might have ruined the chances of the plan succeeding. Another view is that he wanted to see the tragedy for himself. See, it's one thing to hear about a tragedy, about a disaster. It's another thing to be there, to actually be able to touch it, smell it, feel it, sense it. And it could well have been a mix of both of those things. But what we do know is that he makes a thorough inspection. He does does his work, and then now he's ready to go public with the plan. And here's another example of God's providence and then our planning or Nehemiah's planning out, you know, being lived out. You see, even though Nehemiah fundamentally trusted that God's hand was on him and the project, he still put put to use his God-given gifts of administration and leadership. He still made sure that he was going to go there and make sure he'd got his eyes on on this task. got a real sense of, of what, was, what, was, um, what was to be done. He gathers the data before he, final, before he finalizes it and then before he communicates his plan. In the New Testament vision for the church, which, as we looked at last week, the church is the New Jerusalem, Paul writes about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. A Christian in a local church should be asking, what are the spiritual gifts that God's given to me that I can use for the upbuilding and the encouragement um, of this local church? You see, just because God is sovereign, just because God is good, just because his gracious hand is over all of history, that doesn't mean that that we shouldn't be earnestly seeking to bless God's church with, with the gifts that we've been given by God. And also, we can think about the not necessarily spiritual stuff, but just the stuff of life that, that God's given to us. It might be a relationship, a job, a gift, a skill, money, wisdom, capacity, and so on. The question is, how can I use what God's given me, what, what he's graciously given me that I don't deserve, to serve the needs of his church and to reach out to those that don't yet know Jesus? As we put our time, talents, and treasures to good use, what would it look like to constantly live in the light of the providence of God? You see, I don't think it's an accident that God has this group of people in this place, in this church for this time. I think that many of us have sensed that God's been doing a work amongst us, and that God's been unifying us, that God's been God's been speaking to us about what he would long to do through us um, in the future. I don't think it's any accident, the situation that we find ourselves in. And ultimately, the Hallows Church, which ultimately means you guys, the the building is great, but that's not the church. The church is you guys. God has all of us in his hands, all all of us in his loving care. 1 Corinthians 3.6 Paul Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. It's such a great verse for thinking about God's God's part and our part. Paul planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. See, we do do our bit, but ultimately, God is the one who will, will rebuild us as a church. All right, third point then, Nehemiah unites the people, so... He's gone and done his due diligence, done his research, he's done his night mission, he's scoped it out, now he's ready to go public with his plan. Look at verse 16 with me for a moment. It says, The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, for I had not told the Jews, priests, nobles, officials, or the rest of those who would be doing the work. This is an This is another classic example of Nehemiah's faith in God's providence. Can you see it? The rest of those who would be doing the work, he hasn't even told them the plan yet. He he literally hasn't even told them what they're going to do, but he's already in his mind saying, these are the people that are going to do this work. And here's more evidence that Nehemiah knows deep down that God was with him and that God will unite the people around his plan to rebuild. Verse 17 says, So I said to them, You see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned. Come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's wall so that we will no longer be a disgrace. See, if this chapter shows us the delicate balance between planning and providence... Then here in verse 17, we see Nehemiah masterfully communicating his plan. First, he draws attention, peoples attention to the problem. The walls are ruined. Everybody knows it. Everybody is ashamed of it. Everybody feels it. And then when he gets everyone on the same page, he puts forward his plan. It's simple, it's effective. It's five, wor- five words long. "Come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's wall." And then he ends by appealing to their emotions. He says the destruction of Jerusalem has had profound effects on your well-being, on the, on the well-being of others. They keenly felt that disgrace that Nehemiah highlights. And Nehemiah is offering them a way out of, of that disgrace. Nehemiah's communication of his plan is masterful, but he's not done yet. Verse 18 I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and what the king had said to me. This is literally exactly the same phrase as we heard earlier in the passage, the gracious hand of God. You see, Nehemiah knew that the key to uniting the people around the work wasn't his well-researched plan, although that had its purpose. What he really had to do to get people on board was to help them see that God was with them. You see, his audience knew the Scriptures. They'd memorized them from childhood. They would know Psalm 127, verse 1, unless the Lord builds a house, its builders labor in vain. See, this is just as true of the church as it is, or, or it was, sorry, of, of Jerusalem. You see, the church is the continuation of Jerusalem like Jerusalem in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament is the place where God's presence rests. Let's just, like, let's just sit with that for a moment. Like God's presence rests on us right now as a church. And then it says, believers are said to be built like spiritual stones. That's 1 Peter 2.5. So you get this amazing image of like, it's no longer like physical stone that makes up this, this dwelling for God to come and uh, you know, inhabit. Like we, we are the stones. We are those that are being built together as a beautiful house for God's spirit and God's presence to dwell. See the principle that we learn here in, in Nehemiah chapter two, it carries, it carries through to how we think about the church. You see it's so important that the church doesn't prioritize a shiny plan a clever plan a plan that's been well researched as good as that is if that's all we've got then we've got we've basically put the cart before the horse what we need ultimately over and above everything else over and above all the planning all that all that work as important as it is what we need is to seek God's face. To seek his face. To seek what he wants to do in and through us. To seek the ways that he's already at work, the ways in which he's already carving out you know, little grooves for us to start to, to run through. You see, if we do it like this, it could be slower than we, than we want. As, as a church that's made up mostly of professionals, you know, we're, a lot of us are the kind of people that want to get stuff done. Come on, let's do it. That, that's where we're going? Great. We're going to get there as quickly and as, as efficiently as we possibly can. But we've got to like, slow down. Remember, remember the four months of Nehemiah's prayer. That, that kind of sets the tone for the speed at which we should be like, running into this stuff. We're, we're supposed to seek his face, and then, if he, if he runs quickly, then great, we run quickly too. If he says, mm, just pump the brakes a little bit, wait, have faith, trust me, let's, move, let's go a little slower, right? Like, if we're with him, if we're in God's slipstream, if we're in the, like the, the, the train of his robe, and we're, we're that close to him, then we can trust that he will lead and guide us, and that ultimately we'll be in the right place. Even if, it doesn't, even if it doesn't look that impressive on the outside, if we're doing what God is wanting us to do, if, if we're moving with where God is moving in our church, then then we're, we'll be in the right place. We don't want to create our plan and then ask God to bless it. We want to discern what God is doing and then get in, into his slipstream. How do the people respond? Verse 18b. Let's start rebuilding. And their hands are strengthened to do this good work. So when they hear that well, the well-researched plan, they hear that, that God's in it, they unite around the vision. Unity is a beautiful thing, according to Psalm 133, but it's also an elusive thing. It's hard to unite people. That's why there's so few sports teams, businesses, and churches that achieve true unity. Nehemiah 2.18 shows us that for God's people to have true unity, everyone needs to believe deep down that God is with them, that God is with with us. Paul puts his finger on the confidence and the camaraderie that comes with people who unite around God's purposes, assured of his presence in Romans 8.33. He says, What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What comes next is another example of the interplay between human plans and God's providence. See, they, they respond, the people respond willingly, and then it says God strengthens their hands. So here we go again, God's providence and our responsibility. The people did their job. They responded in faith to Nehemiah's plan. But then it was God that strengthened their hands. It was God that gave them the grace to start this project. God strengthens their hands for the work. What a moment. You can almost feel like the positive energy in the air as the people rise up, unite around Nehemiah's plan in assurance that God is working in the background to make it all possible. But then the high is punctured by by the second recording of opposition. Verse 19 says, When when Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about this, they mocked and despised us and said, What is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So here we are again, Sanballat and Tobiah, and then there's also this guy called Geshem, who was was another official. Um, He was an Arab. Um, And they make their feelings known. They publicly speak out against Nehemiah and the others. You see, there's something particularly hard to take about public criticism. Private criticism is hard, but public criticism, when someone's trying to tear you down in front of others, that can be deeply discouraging. Sanballat and Tobiah, they openly mock Nehemiah, they mock his plan and the people for signing up for this, this rebuild. See, this is a more generalized attack. It's like like a modern smear campaign, like someone getting on social media and just bombarding someone over and over again, trying to pull down their character and integrity, trying to pull that all into the open and and basically question everything about them. So they start there, and then they get more specific. They say, what are you doing? They question the plan. They're trying to make Nehemiah and the people second-guess themselves to rethink their decision. Their goal is to make Nehemiah and the people do a U-turn and call off the plan. And then it gets worse. The last thing they throw in there is a veiled threat. Are you rebelling against the king? Remember at this point, very very recently, people had tried to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and King Artaxerxes, he got scared, he he pulled all the walls back down to the ground. And that's the same king. The same king that Nehemiah got permission for to go and do it again. But see, Persian kings, they were like, they were notorious for changing their minds. They were like, one minute they were like all in, and then another minute they were, you know, they blew hot and cold all the time. So they're actually, Sam, sambala Tobiah, and Geshem, they're actually pointing out a really, a really fair point. Like the king could have changed his mind. He could have woke up, woken up a couple of days later and gone, this is a really bad idea. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a stop to this. So they actually, they pulled out, they did pull out um, a pretty big threat there, and it was grounded in truth. And this is, a, this is a crucial moment. This is like the reality check. Can you imagine, like, you're the people. Imagine, like, Nehemiah's here. And all the people who, you know, some ballots by a guest gen, they, like, yell and all this stuff. And then they finish. You can just imagine, like, everybody just, like, slowly <laughs> turning and, like, looking at Nehemiah. And the way, that he, the way that he handles this moment could well mean either the success or the failure of this whole thing. And look at, look at his response absolutely, absolutely incredible the last verse of the passage says I gave them this reply the God of the heavens is the one who will grant success we, his servants, will start building, you have no share right or historic claim in Jerusalem so Nehemiah's response it's measured but but it's firm he starts by ultimately grounding the success of the plan in God's strength the same way that he's done it all the way through this chapter. He starts with, we don't have to be scared of these people because God is God is with us. And then he doubles down. He's like, we, we, we're we going to start rebuilding. I don't, don't really care what you guys think. We're going we're gonna to go for this. We're going to strengthen our hands. We're going to crack on. We're going to act. We're not going to sit around. He refuses to be intimidated. Nothing is going to stop him from from rebuilding the walls. He's resolute and courageous in the face of the fierce opposition and threats coming his way. And then finally, he reminds Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem that they're speaking out of turn. You see, Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, they're important men, they were men men with with clout, but they aren't men of Judah. And so they, they have no part in Judah's history and they have no claim to the city of Jerusalem. And here's the key thing. They show their true colors because, unlike Nehemiah, they do not mention God or God's power or anything about God, for that matter, as the decisive factor in the success of the building project. They're they're coming at it from a purely purely worldly perspective. And as we've seen, Nehemiah is constantly coming at it from a purely godly perspective. So Nehemiah basically says, "You you don't really know what you're talking about. You don't get how things work in in God's kingdom. You don't get that, like, the Bible is basically full of, like, stories where you're like, this is never going to work. And then somehow, in God's power, and God's providence, it actually ends up up working out. They didn't know any of this stuff. So as we've seen, Nehemiah Nehemiah sees everything in life through a theological lens. And so he isn't about to take advice from those who don't think theologically. Those that have an entirely different worldview. So there we have it, Nehemiah chapter two. It's it's constantly that that tension between we believe in God's providence on the one hand, yes, we believe in the fact that we have something to do, yes, and again, like if there's one if there's one theme or. You know, one of the, say, top ten themes of the whole Bible, this is it, like God's providence, human responsibility. We don't know exactly how it all fits together, but, we, but we've got so many amazing examples of how, of how we can live this out. And as I said earlier, remember, ultimately, ultimately, God's, e- God's able to use even the greatest evil for the greatest good. The greatest evil of all time, Jesus nailed to the cross, what did God do? He flipped He flipped it. All, all, of the, all of the people were shouting out, mocking, spitting. They were like, you know, dividing up his clothes. It looked like everything had gone wrong. All the powers of darkness are like, here we go. He's the, he was supposed to be the, the Messiah. He was supposed to come and he was supposed to come and, and rescue everybody, but look, he's bleeding. He's bleeding out. He's running out of air. He's gonna die. And then what did God do? He literally, he flipped it. He flipped everything, and then Jesus rose again. He, he turned the greatest act of evil, the greatest shock in, 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 in anything that's ever happened. The, the Son of God nailed to a cross, criminal's death. He turned that into the decisive victory. And that's, and that's our victory, right? It's, it's the victory that we have, that he now Remember, jo- Joseph comforted his brothers. He said, look, don't worry, don't worry about it. I forgive you. You threw me into a pit, but then God pulled me back out and he, he, helped, me to, he helped me to avert this horrible, horrible famine. God says, God, God gathers us up in his arms. He, he comforts us just like Joseph comfort, comforted his brothers and says, look, I'll take care of you. I'll take care of your family. I'll take care of your, of your, of your spiritual needs. I'll take care of your sin. I'll take care of your shame. I'll take care of everything, everything that would be a barrier between you and me. I'll take care of it all. And he invites us into this incredible fellowship, marked by peace, joy, conviction, purpose. Like, like we, there's nothing else in like, there's nothing else in the world that could give us more conviction and purpose than being loved by the by the Father. Like every, everything we do in our lives, it should all flow out of the comfort, the love, the grace that's been shown us and we get, we get the privilege of, of, of doing something that little, just something little in his kingdom, we get that privilege to do that and it doesn't rest on us like even if, our, even if our efforts ultimately fail like he's big enough to hold everything and we don't have to feel like it's all on us would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you so much for this glorious passage God, and I thank you for all the ways in which it um, points us um to the wisdom of um of holding both um your providence um and also our responsibility and our actions and our plans on, on the other and I thank you so much lord, that um that we we do have a part to play in your kingdom, but it does, but, but this, the ultimate success is in your hands. And that just gives us such peace, God. Thank you so much, Lord, that the future of the Hallows Church does not rest in our hands, it rests in your hands. And you ask us to use our spiritual gifts, you ask us to leverage the things that you've given us in life to, you know, for, for, for the advancement of your kingdom. But, but again, always circling back to the fact that you are sovereign over all things and that ultimately we're in your hands. We're, we're safe that the gracious hand of God is on us. Thank you that we can all say that in this room. That the gracious hand of God is on us. Thank you so much, Father. I pray for those that whose grace, Your gracious hand is on them, but they haven't yet given their life um, to You. That, su- that surrendered their lives to You. I just pray, God, that um, in this moment now, if, yeah, if um, those people want to call out to You and just. Acknowledge your gracious hand and acknowledge the way that you've made, made it possible for them to be brought into a loving relationship with you through what Jesus did. I just pray that, that this would be a moment where they get to spend that time with you, God. And for those that have been, Christ, been a Christian for like 50 years, I just pray that, that yet again, that, that just the grace that's come our way in, in Christ would just once again just call, cause joy to well up, God cause joy to, to spill over and yeah I just pray that you be with us for the rest of this time Lord and that we respond to these truths. Thank you that your pre- your presence is with us here. That you are with us, Lord. That this isn't just a it's not just a building of you know of wood and um and the rest of it, God. It's ultimately we're a we're a people. Um and your yeah your spirit is amongst us as as your people. So yeah guide guide and lead us Lord is the way the way that you only can. Amen.